0: When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up?
1: If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again.
0: This is Post Everything. A
1: podcast about
0: remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to Post Everything. It is bonus episode time. This is John Homus, one of your co-hosts that posts everything. And next week, you will hear a trailer for season two where we begin to talk about artificial intelligence. But we wanted to drop something in between season one and season two because we thought it would be really helpful. And this is something a little different than we normally have done. In the past, we've done interviews and conversations. But this bonus episode is specifically a talk that Brad Edwards, my co-host, gave called Planting Churches That Function – As greenhouse institutions. Now, the moment and the place that Brad gave this is important. Brad gave this talk back in March of 2022, March of 2022 at the Spanish River Church Planning Conference in Boca Raton, Florida. And that was an important moment, an important place, because at that time, restrictions around COVID were kind of winding down. And all of us as church planners felt like we were coming out of a figurative bunker out of a bomb blast trying to make sense of what had happened and what we were seeing, and going, where the heck do we start to rebuild? Now, at this conference, there was church planters from around the country as well as around the world, and it was an important moment for all of us. Specifically, I want to share why it was an important moment for me. Brad and I have been friends for a while, and we actually church planted and launched churches within three weeks of each other, back in the fall of 2015. Now, Brad was in Boulder, Colorado, and I was in Hollywood, Florida, just north of Miami. But as I planted, I was just struggling with the model and the map that I had inherited. Now, I'd been part of four different church plants in four different cities, but planting back in 2015 and trying to build a new church felt so different. And I just found myself mumbling to myself over and over, we need a new model for church planning. We need a new model for church planning. I was running into the effects of individualism. And individualism is really pervasive in the West. But I found that South Florida was a level of individualism I had not encountered before. But also South Florida is very diverse. You know, we talk about cross-cultural ministry and multicultural ministry. And I found that South Florida was uber multicultural. So every interaction you had with someone, you couldn't make assumptions about what you were communicating or what they were communicating because the cultural landscape was just so different between different cultures. And I ran into a couple of things. One challenge I had was around discipleship. Why is programmatic discipleship not having the effect that I've seen it have in the past? Then secondly, evangelism and sharing about Jesus. How do I have conversations with people about Jesus when their response is that they've heard it all, and they show complete apathy towards it. Or they're hostile towards me personally, the moment I mention the words pastor or church. Or they're completely suspicious of me as a white Caucasian dude. All these things really disrupted my mental map. And I'm a map guy. I decorate walls in my house with maps. I'm a map nerd. And the mental map I had for culture and church planting felt really outdated. As a church planting practitioner, how do I grow, build and lead a group of people when I have a map that doesn't seem to fit reality? And as I listened to this talk back in March of 2022 from Brad, I thought, man, he's really on to something. Now, Brad actually stuck around in Hollywood for like a week. He was going to do some study leave there. And we got together several times and had several convos. That's when I first learned about Tara Isabella Burton and her book, Strange Rights, which has been so formative for both of us. Brad actually came and talked to a cohort of local church planners and really was able to give us some handholds for what was happening in our culture. And all that really became the genesis of our conversations, which led to this podcast. Now, I know this isn't a church planting podcast, but we both happen to be church planners, which means Brad and I have to be navigators of culture and students of leadership. And so even as you hear this talk, planting churches that function as greenhouse institutions, try and apply it broader than just planting churches. Think about your organization, your community of people, your institution, and how it might apply to you. At the end of the talk, there'll be a question and response with a panel, and the voices you'll hear on that will be Brad's, as well as Al Barth, who's the director of church planning at Spanish River Church in Boca Raton, Florida, David Cassidy, who's the lead pastor at Spanish River Church in Boca Raton, Florida, Rick Hunter, who's the director of the City Church Project, a church planning network in South Florida. But you'll also hear from Musa Intinga, who is the lead pastor of Christ's Central Church in Soweto, South Africa. So I hope you enjoy this. I'll circle back at the end and give some thoughts, but let's jump into this.
0: My big idea for this morning is this idea that the the pandemic has served as a stress test and an acceleration of a culture of individualism to the point of being systemic within institutions. And that requires us to think far more, you guessed it, systemically than we have ever had to think. Now, I want to also qualify this and say that I um, I have... Only the experience of being in the white evangelical church and the hipster secular church. Thank you. Okay, this is gonna be a long morning. (laughs) So I am not trying to speak out of anything outside of that. And I would love the feedback of this very uh, global, diverse community of church planters to tell me like, hey, how much does this shoe fit? Or whether it does or not at all, because that's some really helpful perspectives for, for guys like me who are in the midst of a very monocultural environment. And so let me break down what I mean by this though. By individualism, I mean the cultural movement from a received identity, a received dignity, value, and worth to an achieved identity. This is also the movement between institutions and individuals being responsible for that dignity, value, and worth in ways that will become very clear as we go here. By systemic, I think the best way I have come to describe this is as if individualism is experiencing and the church is experiencing a kind of cultural climate change, right? Individualism in the West, in the United States, this is not new. It's been around for a long time. But since about the baby boomer generation, we have seen an increase in rate of change, culturally speaking, that has moved each successive generation's starting point just a little bit further down the road toward individualism. Such that we are now, like each generation, doesn't really know any different than the, the, the hand that they were dealt. And that's the starting point. And it's just the trajectory is increasingly individualistic. That does not mean, by the way, institutions don't exist anymore. They still do exist. And tribalism is very much kind of an outworking and a, the response of an individualistic culture. That is longing for a connection and a home within institutions that is not getting met or that need is not being scratched, that itch is not being scratched. That said, that means that our institutions have become compromised. Instead of being a refuge and a shelter from the chaos of individualism and the burden and the crushing pressure of individualism, we are instead propagating it. In other words, Everybody's crawling up the stairs, as Tony was talking about in his sermon. And it's crushing. Except in Colorado, they're 14ers, but we can talk about that later. Now, what, so what? what? How does that actually come out, especially in, for people in this room for church planting? Well, it means that probably around 2015, you noticed, like I did, that the typical visitor coming in through the front doors of your church went from expecting to being formed by the church to expecting the church to be formed by them. Now, we expect this of our non-Christian neighbors, right? They have no ecclesiology, of course not. But that Christians are the primary culprits here helps us see that individualism has systemically saturated the church such that the church is now making disciples of individualism more than disciples of Jesus. So, what, what do we do with that? What's the solution? I'm convinced, and this is the title of my talk, that the solution is planting churches that function more biblically as what I call greenhouse institutions. Greenhouse institutions, because if Ken Myers is right that culture is what we make of the world, then institutions are greenhouses that God uses to make us us. Specifically, he does this through communities that have an explicit concentration of external purpose and received identity communities with external purpose and received identity. Now the first greenhouse institution actually wasn't a greenhouse it was a garden. If you look at Genesis 1 verse 26 it says then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness the imago Dei. This is this is language of received identity received dignity value and worth because for, I mean I know this is obvious but Adam could not have achieved any dignity value and worth before he was created. So of course it was received. He it k- keeps going in Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is external purpose. Received identity, external purpose combined. Post-fall, the ecosystem, the environment, the climate, spiritually speaking and culturally speaking, changed. And so now we need a greenhouse. And we have a picture of what a post-fall greenhouse institution should look like in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation,' post-fall Old Testament institution, "'and I will bless you and make your name great.'" Received identity. God's going to make their name great. So that, purpose statement, you will be a blessing. External purpose. Do you see how this is going? What's beautiful and what's amazing is this actually follows a picture of what happens when institutions become systemically compromised. And that's the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, achieved identity. God says, no, no, that's not the right way. You need to receive the identity. I'm going to make a name, make of you a great name, not achieve it. And then internal purpose follows. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this last clause is particularly important because Christopher Wright, who wrote this, the incredible book, The Mission of God, notes that this clause in particular is a direct refutation and rebellion and rejection of the cultural mandate that says to fill the earth and subdue it. It turns it upside down. And so we have the cultural mandate going from an external purpose that flows out of a received identity. It is now perverted and transformed or deformed into an internal purpose in order to achieve identity. I know I'm talking about individualism, but we're just talking about sin, right? Now, the West, the Western Western society is living through our own Tower of Babel moment right now. Despite mountains of data and several dystopian episodes of Black Mirror, we keep entrusting identity formation, our dignity, value, and worth to counterfeit institutions of social media. And the consequences are starting to not just take root, but bear fruit. In a fantastic interview with Verge Magazine, Keanu Reeves and Carrie-Ann Moss were plugging their the upcoming, uh, well now it's it's past release, uh, Matrix Resurrections, which is a really oxymoronic name by the way for a movie. Keanu Reeves is, is telling this story about how he was talking to the daughter of one of his friends who's a Hollywood director, and this daughter's about 15 or 17 years old, and so she was Sorry if, if, if you're like me, and you're like, wow, she was born after the original movie, Matrix, was made. <sighs> Not achieving my identity right now, don't worry. Anyway, she, she had never seen the movie, didn't know the premise of the plot or anything, and so Keanu Reeves says he's describing, he's like, you know, there's this guy, Thomas Anderson... He discovers one day, because Morpheus shows him and tells him that he's not actually living in the real world. He's living in a virtual reality, and it's all fake. It's not real. And so Thomas Anderson is on this quest, this adventure to free himself and free humanity from virtual reality. Thankfully, he was as disturbed as I was and as you will be to hear that her unhesitating response to this, was to genuinely and sincerely, and not not ironically, ask, who cares if it's real? Who cares if it's real? In other words, why limit your identity to the constraints of brick and mortar when a tower built of ones and zeros can just as easily free you, to quote the Metaverse Marketing Podcast. To quote, live out any identity you can imagine. Who cares if it's real? Church planners care if it's real. Christians should care if it's real. Jesus cares if it's real, because reality, never mind institutions, will be as subject to our imagination as our identity is. Fill the earth and subdue it will become use the earth and escape it with virtual reality replacing a heavenly reality for our aspirations. Unfortunately the church has been far from immune from this, right? When pulpits are turned into platforms and when the bread and wine of the Lord's supper is interchangeable with stout and potato chips and we all wish I weren't making I were making that example up. We are centering meaning on ourselves, on the self. And we are discipling people right out of the church. Because we are discipling people right away from the very institution, the very greenhouse that strengthens their faith and their love of God. You start to get truisms like this one I found on on Twitter the other day. It says, when I say deconstruction, I'm referring to an attempt to recognize the difference between God himself and the scaffolding that's been erected around him through, listen to this, generations of man-made institutions, traditions, and power grabs. I just want to see his face. We are in this room because we want and long for people like that to see Jesus's face. The idea that it's even possible to see Jesus apart from his bride is the fruit of a discipleship that sees the church as a discardable means to an end that loves the bride only as long as she is useful to us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Brad, I really want to hang out with you. I just, I just want to hang out. Let's, like, let's like have a beer in the backyard or whatever. But you know what? Can you make sure that Hannah, your wife, isn't home? I like you, but man, she's kind of a jerk. Are we going to hang out? No, we're not going to hang out. Now, thankfully, Jesus is a much bigger man than I am. But are you getting all of Jesus? Can you get the groom without the bride? I don't think so. Frankly, that is Christ-themed and not Christ-centered. What's worse, this actually, as church planters specifically, this guts our, our witness because we are treating the church no different than our individualist neighbors, because, and it requires zero heart transformation to love a bride only if she is beautiful and useful to us. That's not grace. And yet, that is how we have dis- discipled people. Now, let me, let me validate and say this, that this was never any of our intention. It just wasn't. And it's not all our fault. There are a lot more dynamics at, place, at play than this. But it is our problem. It is our challenge. And so, what do we do with that? And Here, I've got, I've got three buckets all geared toward this end, then there are probably more buckets and these are general enough that you can probably, you know, fill them in with your local context, but I'm convinced that it is at least these three buckets of what we need to do with this. Because in order to make disciples that love the church as an end and means, as the bride and the body, then we need greenhouse blueprints that include both stained glass and fertile soil. We need greenhouse blueprints that have both stained glass and fertile soil. And so here's, here are my, you know, my three points here. Okay. The first is pre-emergent discipleship. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm in a suburban context. And I have, with every year that I live where I am, I loathe dandelions more and more every single year. I'm I'm convinced that when the curse in the fall is given, that the thorns and thistles that Adam had to deal with were actually like literally translated as dandelions, right? Dandelions are the worst. You have to pluck them out by the root. You can't just cut them off at the top. You can only hope to limit the spread if you do that. And also, they take advantage. They take advantage of your five-year-old son's excitement to blow those dandelion seeds all over your yard and you just don't want to ruin his fund, but it kills you inside. But even if somehow you were able to convince him to pass by on that fund, your neighbors may not care about dandelion removal as much as you do. Not that I'm projecting. And those dandelions will sprout, and they will will germinate, and they will spread their seeds into your yard, and it doesn't matter how many times you pluck those dandelions, it's going to get worse and bad every year. You can't eliminate them completely, but if you think systemically instead of individually, you can actually keep up. You can put down what's called a pre-emergent fertilizer. And if you're from Boulder County, it's very much organic, don't worry. And you can prevent those seeds from germinating in the first place. We have still contextualized our discipleship, not contra-individualism, but within individualism, and that's a problem. We're still trying to pluck the dandelions by the root, and no kidding, we can't keep up. We need a pre-emergent discipleship that kind of like how Tim Keller has said over the last couple years especially, just like the catechisms and creeds and confessions of, of old were intended to inoculate God's people from the influence of Roman Catholicism. Well, guess what? We need discipleship geared around individualism, and we have to be able to, as fish, describe what it's like to be wet, otherwise our people will never know the difference. And our discipleship will just never keep up with the dandelions. Number two, we need redesigned trellises to compensate for this cultural climate change instead of contribute to it, right? We need to ask the question, for example, how are we unintentionally perpetuating systemic individualism in the way that we prepare, send, and support church planters, Right? Speaking of Tim Keller, in January 2021, I heard an interview with him where he, he was asked, hey, how are pastors doing? You know, you're in contact with a lot of pastors across the world and across the U.S. How are they doing? And he said, by way of answering that question, he said that recently he was talking to his wife and Kathy, and he just said, you know, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, but at least I'm not a working pastor right now. Pastors, you don't have to quote me or tell, you, tell me you got that from me to go tell your people that that's what Tim Keller is saying, just like we do with everything else he says, okay? Would we be there, would we be in the place where 40% of, of, of pastors in the U.S. were seriously thinking about leaving the ministry over the last year, according to Barna? Would we be in that place if we had sufficient trellises for the growth of the leaders of, in church planting? I think it would still be there, but maybe only 20%. Hell, maybe only 30%. Too many of our incentive structures require financial dependence on cultural Christianity, on individualistic Christianity, and it's going to be very difficult to plant a church to disciple and not just weed out the dandelions, but lay down some pre-emergent discipleship. If you have a shot clock of three years, like a gun to your head that you have to become financially self-sustaining for all the church planters said, okay, you're welcome. I will never be invited back. <laughs> the last thing I will say is we have to really reapproach church planting through the lens of team. Not individual. Like, what is more individualistic than selling, sending solo planters where only Jesus can go on his own? Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, and we need architects and gardeners if we are going to build these greenhouses with stained glass and fertile soil. Because while one person is able to maybe start the church and do the gathering, we need somebody who's able to pull the weeds out of the individualistic weeds out of God's people's hearts and yet still expand the greenhouse as we go. These are two complementary gift sets that you don't, you frankly don't find all in one person except Jesus. In the New Testament, I could only find one example of of a solo missionary sent into the mission field, and that was Philip evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And God miraculously transported him there as if to communicate, guys, this isn't normative. (laughs) By definition, this is an exception. If individualism is a dandelion, I want you to think about it as a kind of a delayed defeater belief. You know, Tim Keller has coined the term of of defeater belief, and and it doesn't preclude belief, it erodes it because it erodes people's connection to the very greenhouse institution that God has ordained and given as a means of forming and shaping our faith in Christ. And when we do the same, we actually allow those seeds to germinate and spread and help it along and blow them into the wind like my five-year-old son. And so that means we need a gardener and an architect, at least one of each, and it doesn't have to be two pastors, and those gift sets don't have to be just between two people. It could be spread across the team. I don't really care. And yes, it will cost more money, but I'd rather that 40% go down to 20%, and I'd rather one baptism a year go down, up to 10 And I would love for somebody other than the church planner or the pastor to be the one who's bringing people to faith, right? Okay, I'm really looking forward to the panel discussion because I, I feel like I have a very clear understanding of what's happening and what's going on in terms of the problem, but I would, I need solutions. We are grasping around in the dark in a lot of ways at the table, and I have a lot more questions than answers still. But I want to end on a note of hope because I know I just articulated a lot of need and a lot of problem, but our hope that is, is this, that if God called a childless, geriatric, reluctant immigrant out of the ruins of Babel, because that's what Ur is, right? It's the tower that has been brought to the ground by God, and then God called Abraham out of that mess. And if that's the case, then the ruins of Christendom or white evangelicalism hold similar promise. So I encourage us, let's trash the blueprints that built our Tower of Babel and get back to the drawing board to plant greenhouses with stained glass, because the church is Christ's bride and she is beautiful and does not need to be used for anything because she has been glorified because of what Christ has done, not because of what we have done. And that's amazing. But also as a greenhouse that makes disciples, not just convert our neighbor and does so in such a way that those looking from outside in think to themselves, there must be a God around here somewhere because I have no other explanation. Thank you.
2: David Cassidy, uh, Musa Intinga, Where's Musa? There, and let's see, who else? Uh, Rick Hunter, if you guys will come up and be part of the panel. Um, And even as you're you're coming, um, that that, uh, that first kind of a deal that you were doing there, uh, Brad, was interesting. How do we break? and I don't know what the answer to this is, but how do we break people out of the uh, unreality that's, that people seem to be experiencing as their reality and get them to you know, deal with what really is? Uh, so uh, this week has been uh, difficult in a couple of ways. So, so two guys I know intimately died. One, my greatest colleague for years, Jay Kyle, 70 years old, Lord takes them out. Um, and that's reality. When you come face to face with death, my brother in law's brother was killed in a helicopter accident last Friday. Not a believer at all, no hope whatsoever. He's gone. Boy, that's a whole lot different than some, you know, virtual identity that you're somehow experiencing. How do we get people out of that individual's stuff? into what's real, you know? So I think that's what we're talking about, okay? Uh, reactions from any of the panelists first um, to what Brad was saying, and then we'll, we'll take questions or comments from the audience. Jump in, guys. I'll,
3: I'll Brad, you very passionately defended the, um, the glory of the bride, and I'm thankful for that. Speak for just a moment to the the people or for the people who don't feel safe yet coming into church because the church as an institution has been a place of danger and harm to them. In a certain sense, they haven't rejected Jesus. They long for more of Jesus, more of the true reality, they they don't they can't connect to the church right now, and they might be tempted to say and have said, "I can't have the church right now." So they they would be counted among the dechurched, who have Jesus. Um, how do you speak to those folks? They've been harmed, whether it's through misogyny, abuse, harassment, pastoral. Um, abuse of power and deception uh, those kinds of things because we want them to see the glory and the beauty of the bride but for many the accumulated dust on the surface is just so great it's hard for them to brush it away to see the the beauty how, how do you speak to those folks because i know you've got them and you're doing a good job with that
0: yeah i'd say um first of all just for context we when we planted and launched the table, we we did so to try and reach our neighbors, and we're shocked to uh, to basically have evangelical refugees flowing through our doors. And what he's describing is is basically their observation, even though they wouldn't use these words. Basically, what has happened is institutions have become so systemically saturated with individualism that now individuals are stewarding the power of institutions instead of institutions stewarding the power of individuals. And when that gets flipped and backwards, that's an environment where spiritual or institutional abuse can happen. Now, that's the reality of it. It's not all churches, but that gets compounded by the algorithmic digital Sherpa that is your social media newsfeed. that then highlights and shows you all of those examples that cause the outrage, increase your engagement, and cause you to think that that is the norm. You put those two things together, and it makes the church an incredibly trauma-inducing place. Now, there's no one like silver bullet for that, except to say, to validate that, and this actually has had explanatory power for a lot of people who have come in expressing those cautions and fears. We do, we do a lot of things, like we do a text-in anonymous Q&A, and let me tell you what we have, what kind of questions we get when we do that, and we do that as part of the service because we try to encourage people, like, hey, you can bring these hard questions to God. You can voice your problems within the church because it's within the church that that actually should be happening, not outside the church. And as a result, we, we've had a hard time reaching dechurched, but we're batting a 1,000 with people who've come into the church and started deconstructing while they're at the table, they all have reconstructed. And I'm gonna—we're gonna get to accept somebody as a member the Sunday after Easter, who started at the table four and a half years ago, and it was the long, ordinary means of grace, the institutional church, that gradually gradually brought his heart around. That's that's beautiful, and so I. I don't, is that No, I, I think that's fine. I, the fact that
3: there is no one silver bullet, yeah. that radical individualism actually reinforces the pain, and that's one of the reasons the church has to reject it. but also giving them the freedom to ask hard questions and making that part of the service, that's fantastic. That means
0: pastors can't be afraid of hard questions. I say I don't know a lot. <laughs> and or I'll get back to you. Or right? Al Barth. Or Al Barth) <laughs> Yeah, uh, Musa. Um,
2: much of what Brad talks about or was talking about here feels like it's particularly a North American Western, you know, kind of a, a problem. So even the guys that uh, we prayed for last night from Albania, Slovakia, and we were talking about the Ukraine, uh, Russia thing. The Matrix stuff is not. Uh, that's not what they're dealing with. It's it's too much in 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 their face, but it seems like South Africa is in between, experiencing those those issues, but uh, but actually dealing with the realities. I mean, you're in a township, Soweto, the most famous township in, in the world. What, what's your response uh, to this? Interact with that a little bit.
4: Um, yeah, so I think as I've listened, um, so there's two things happening. I, I think it was kind of touched on in the previous session where because we live in a more globalized um, world, the things that are happening here in America or elsewhere, they do have a tendency to permeate and we respond to those to those things, even though there's a sense in which materially on the ground, they don't quite express themselves in the same way. Um, but at the same time, there's also a resurgence of um, a new sense in which people are rediscovering um, themselves, rediscovering old institutions um, or old uh, basically beliefs. and So that is coming up at the same time as people are also wrestling with institutions such as churches um, and seeing some of the hurts that's happening there and responding to it. And so the people, for example, uh, one of the things that are happening in, uh, in Soweto is that uh, like ancestral uh, beliefs is something that is, 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 is again, is, is on a resurgence. And it's coming up, but it's coming up in a very in a very detached way to the way in which it happened in the past. So before, it had to do a lot with your tribe, what you're doing. But now, you're having people. Um, like, I don't know, sangomas, which be like mediums, will pop up on the internet or pop up on social media and say, hey, um, I think you have a particular problem. How can I help you with that problem? And so people are saying, oh, this is more spiritual, but it's very detached from, yes. uh, from, from the institutions that it was previously attached to. Uh, and so how do you then wrestle with that uh, because you, you, it's you, the way in which you used to uh, counter it in the past, in the world of individualism, where reality and it's very virtual, it's it's very tricky to know how to kind of maneuver in those two worlds. But we're definitely seeing uh, some of it, even though it looks it's, it has it doesn't have the same origins as as it does here in the states.
2: Great. Rick, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond in just a minute, so just think about it. But uh, questions or reactions from the audience? Comments you want to make? JP.
0: Brad, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you can put a little more flesh on the pre-emergent discipleship mm. piece that you're talking about. Like, what does that look like for you guys uh, at, at the table? Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, wh- here's what we're trying. Why did we have you speak then? I, I, I've been asking you the same question. Um, no, here, here, there are some, some lessons learned from this reality are, one, I've been stunned by how much that 18 to 35-year-old uh, demographic that was talked about in the last session is hungry for theology, in ways that are very shocking and surprising to previous generations, especially because the whole effort to reach people was very much to make that digestible easily, um, and so I like y'all, I know we say nobody 's ever asked you to preach a longer sermon, but i've had i 've been asked that twice now it 's not because i 'm a crazy gifted preacher it 's because they like they just want more and so that is really instructive, right? Now that said, not everybody's there, and so that means partially discipleship. And, and I'm gonna I'm gonna riff off and steal from Mark Sayers. If you know who that is, you should follow everything he writes and says because it's he couldn't make it today, so I'm here, right? He he talks about how it used to be that you could plug a a young Christian into a system and have a, an assimilation track that included being in a small group and you know, for however many years you could trust that on the other side of that pipeline, they would pop out a mature Christian, or if not a mature leader. What we're realizing is that actually had a lot more cultural reasons for it than than we thought. And now discipleship needs to happen in a far less linear way. And so at the table... Bryce Hales, my, our pastor of spiritual formation, is, is experimenting with this. And we have community groups, which are basically like family, right? Extended spiritual family. And we're also having discipleship groups. And yeah, we named them that because that's what they are. Um, but the discipleship groups, they're, they're going to be laying new ruts in old roads. Daily office. Prayer, reading, Stillness and, silen- silen- uh, stillness and silence, we actually don't need to reinvent the wheel. All the tools are right there. Word, sacrament, prayer. Within the accountable institution that is the church, it actually works. And, and I would say that the 18 to 35-year-old demographic is, is actually longing for it because all of the counterfeit versions of it, don't, what they don't offer is refuge from the cultural climate change. And the anxiety of that rapidity and the speed of that change as it accelerates, it's actually the institution itself, not what the institution does for them that they're longing for. Greenhouse. Good. You know, as I've worked across the world, the
2: three things that I hear over and over and over again, particularly from that generation, but even really up through the 40s, is there's three things that people are yearning for, which resonates, I think, both or reflects both what Brooke was talking about, but, but also you. Truth, authenticity, and community. That's what they're desperate for. And if we can, if we can produce that, it'll be incredibly helpful. Rick, give us, give us a reaction from you, and then uh, we'll take one or, more, one or two more questions from the group.
5: Yeah, I, I think, is this thing on? All right. Yeah, we're on. All right, good. I think that one of the things you were just talking about was this even programmatically providing community for people. Um, I'll just give you a little anecdote. One story There's a, a woman in our church who's been part of the church for some period of time during the, during the pandemic. She gets connected with a boyfriend who uh, is not a Christian. Um, you know that story uh, probably a thousand times, right? Um, but she's a good friend, and this boyfriend is, treats her well, we see her come alive in a lot of ways, so it's a really tricky kind of, oh my gosh, what, how do we deal with this? It'd be awesome if she had an amazing Christian boyfriend, but the Christian boyfriends she'd had are terrible human beings. Uh, so this, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's, is there a nicer way to put that? No, it's terrible human beings. It
0: was a laugh-so-you-don't-cry response.
5: Yeah, there we go. Um, so this guy, though, um, he wants to engage, and, but he's, he's not interested in any of the kind of um, theological stuff, any of those kind of objections, complete atheist. Her best friend's husband dies. And the outpouring of the church and the Christian community coming around this woman, who's 35 years old and is now a widow, um, rocks his world. He has nothing he has no categories for it he 's never seen that kind of people that kind of hardly know this one woman who 's now a widow actually caring for providing for massive medical debt that they have um, providing uh, meals providing uh, evenings together, whatever it is whatever it happens to be um, it's the actually it 's the church being the church and coming and coming along somebody, alongside somebody in their worst period of time, that's an apologetic for the church. And that's the kind of stuff that as much as this generation or this, or this rising generation may be anti-institutional, only the institution of the church can provide that kind of stuff. Otherwise, they're hit and miss. Otherwise, maybe a neighbor or two is going to come around or a work friend might say, hey, can I make you a casserole? And you really want to say, no, I'd rather not have a casserole. I'd rather mourn at home by myself um, than eat a casserole. Um, Thanks. I appreciate that, Tony. One person laughed. That joke was for you. If I can make a widow joke. Um, Yeah, but that's the kind of stuff that institutions are important, but we live in such an anti-institutional age. So the church has to be both fluid in a way and also building the institution in such a way that provides those ordinary means of grace for people to interact with and experience Christ.
0: Yeah, I think, I think even more than um, because like part of the difficulty of this conversation is like, what's the difference between an institution and a community, right? Um, if you haven't read this book, please buy, I'd get nothing from this, by the way, Tara Isabella Burton's Strange Rites. Uh, it's, the subtitle is New Religions for a Godless World. And part of her thesis is that institutions used to be where you find community, ritual, meaning, and purpose all in one place, But that has since been decentralized. And so you can pick and choose and find those things in whatever means and availability you can, whether that's social media or, you know, whatever community. Like we have one of our biggest problems and struggles is we have people who are plugged into our community at the table who call themselves Christians and never come in worship. It's because they worship in the mountains. It's all individualistic. So how do we communicate the importance of community beyond just the individualistic need for community that people are decentralizing and finding wherever they can, like a buffet? Well, we have to talk about the connections between community, ritual, meaning, and purpose, and how in Christ, those things are very different and way more than the sum of their parts. You, uh, you mentioned
3: in, in, uh, in passing that the failure of institutions has been... In some measure, answered by the rise of tribalism. Mm-hmm. Can you just comment on that a little bit more? With the tribes that exist, is, you know, is it is it primarily political? Is it um, uh, what, what kind of, what, what is and how is that impacting uh, the capacity for the communities, real community in the church, to emerge? Because individualism hits everything from. Uh, the way we view other people to sex, to how we think about career and all that stuff. But, but people can't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So they do create these tribes.
0: Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things, I'm gonna, I swear this will answer the question. The cultural mandate, which I talked about, I hear, I, I love the cultural mandate. If you read Andy Crouch, Culture-making, it's fun to talk about the cultural mandate. I love it. It's beautiful. I've yet to hear somebody point out that the fact that the cultural mandate was given in the garden, not in, a, not in general kind of creation, generic, generic, not unformed creation, but the place that God prepared for Adam and Eve beforehand as a proto-institution, right? It's the beginnings of an institution we are made for it that is actually part of what it means to bear the image of god that we are made for institutions and when we build the tower of babel or we pervert institutions to make a name for ourselves or we leave them entirely to build our own digital babel god's going to confuse that it's going to it's going to fall down it's going to we're going to be scattered Another thing Christopher Wright said about the Tower of Babel narrative is that in the scattering, he's actually forcing, with judgment, he's forcing humanity to live out the cultural mandate anyway. And then he prevents them from being able to rebuild the tower by confusing their language. That's biblical tribalism. It's literally being split into tribes. (laughs) We can't do without institutions. And when we try to replace them with something we've made in our own image, it doesn't go well, and it doesn't flourish. Image bearers. Try.
5: Hey Brad, I got a a quick question. Where? Me over here. Um, Where have you uh, have you seen maybe glimmers of hope? Um, There, there are, you know, especially during the pandemic, in the lockdown phases. Almost every church went digital in one way or another. There's so many limitations to that. I know we've all felt it. Where have you seen glimmers of hope of of the real presence of Christ um, transforming individuals and also transforming communities? mean, let me
0: tell you, I keep racking my brain and thinking to myself, God, if only we had a part of the church that has already experienced what it's like to not be a part of majority culture, but to be in minority culture, and then to have to so depend on the institutional church, the body and bride of Christ, because there are no other cultural handholds that you can grab onto because everybody keeps taking them away from you. If only we had an example that we could learn from.
3: Gosh, where could that be?
0: I don't know, but I'm pretty sure Doug should be holding the microphone right now. I'm serious, like, I mean, so much of the conversation that we were having yesterday, I'm just like, Doug is just, he's here, he's you're doing this. Don't give it to him, we'll never get to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious though, so when, I, when we think about a greenhouse institution, that should be the intersection of cultural refuge and resilience. And it has only been, well, it's not been really either for a lot of people, and that's tragic. But we need to be asking, like, systemically, not just individually, like, not just in our methodology and how we plant churches, but what is our ecclesiology? Are we inviting people into a personal relationship with Christ or also into the grand narrative of redemption of which they are just one part of? Right? Covenant... The, the concept of covenant is the intersection between the corporate inclusion in the body of Christ and the individual specificity and, and care. It's not collectivist and it's not individualistic. It's covenantal, and that's something wholly apart from what the world has to offer. Okay, good, good. All right, got to cut it off. <laughs>
2: All right, uh, there'll be a good bit of time this afternoon and this evening on the boat ride thing to have a lot of conversations about uh, about this kind of thing. Uh, Let's thank Brad. We appreciate it, Brad. And, of course, the panelists as, as well.
1: Stuff right. I want to take a moment and just affirm a couple things that Brad said, as well as just process with you what I'm thinking. Brad was careful to put limits on his knowledge and experience based on his own context. At the very beginning of the talk, he said, hey, I'm a white guy and I planted in Boulder. But I really do think that what he's saying about individualism goes beyond the West, goes beyond North America and Europe to anywhere that has encountered the expressive individualism of the West. For instance, Musa, the church planner from South Africa, said that many people are adopting the spiritual practices of their ancestors, but detaching them from their original purpose. That is expressive individualism. I also was part of a church plan in London And part of one in St. Louis and many people we interacted with, many people we pastored, many people in our circle were not born in the UK or born in the United States, but had come from other countries as either immigrants or refugees. One of the things I found in London was that a lot of the people who had come from South Asia, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, a lot of the movies that came out of those cultures were about the traditionalism of the past versus the expressive individualism of the present. In other words, you might get three generations of a family, grandparents, parents, and kids who all moved to the UK, and the grandparents are so lost in the culture, and the parents are trying to hold on to their past culture, where the kids are, for the first time, confronted with expressive individualism, and the parents feel like they're losing their kids to this individualistic society. Now, at the time, I thought that was more about traditionalism. But as I look back on it, I really think it's about the collectivism of more communal cultures being lost in the individualism of the West. And so I think this idea of individualism goes beyond just Western cultures to kind of any place that the West touches. The second thing I want to affirm is what Brad was saying about minority churches that is churches who are predominantly people of color in the West and how they are already geared towards navigating this cultural moment. One of the things that I found when I was planning in South Florida was the black churches in the area were really hospitable to me as a pastor. Some of the pastors took me under their wing and I got to learn from them up close. And I found that their churches were much more nimble and agile with much less cultural power. And I thought, wow, they have really been discipled how to operate in this culture of liminality. They don't need as many resources. They don't need as many places of power and authority in order to do ministry. So those two things, I really want to affirm what Brad said from my own experience. But I want to process discipleship and the conversation about discipleship just a little bit. I think my takeaway, my one little catchphrase that Brad said that I love, he said, individualism is a delayed, defeater belief. And what he meant by that was individualism is so seeped in the average person's heart and mind that it pops up way down the line and can actually derail or at least stunt their growth in Christ. And his solutions were that we need pre-emergent discipleship as well as redesigned trellises. For that pre-emergent discipleship, I want to recommend a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire by Alan Kreider. Now, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church takes some patience to read because it's a slow book. But my main takeaway from that book was that in the early church, this is like after the scriptures had been written, after the events of Acts had taken place, the path to conversion was much slower and much more intentional in the Christian communities that existed. Really, they said, hey, let's just live out the Sermon on the Mount and see what happens. And they invited people into a personal relationship with Jesus, with other followers of Jesus. So they didn't really center the individual. Really, they centered the community of followers of Jesus. And conversion was seen as following Jesus with us. They were not in a rush to get people to walk the aisle, it was much more about making sure they understood and that the gospel had really fermented in the proper way in someone's life, in someone's heart, in someone's mind. So that individualism didn't pop up later as a defeated belief. So I'm curious, what could that look like in your context? For us in South Florida, one of the tension points is just our culture down here is so emotive. The look of things matters more than the actual depth and reality of things. It's it's a feeling culture, good vibes only. So, individuals' experience of something matters way more than anything else. I've had people say to me, I'll come near church, and if it makes me feel good, I'll stay. Now, of course, we want to make people feel good, but that to me feels so challenging, right? That's a tension point where I have to make everybody feel good in order to stay. Well, that's not really what this is about. So that's a tension point I think we're wrestling with here in South Florida. I wonder if you're wrestling with this point as well, the rise of therapy culture. As people become more and more aware of mental health, that's a good thing. And yet at the same time, we have popularized mental health and therapy culture so much that You can talk yourself out of anything that's hard, out of anything that's uncomfortable, because you're trying to make space for your own mental health. But the reality is, in discipleship, even if you're not connected to a community of Christians, it's hard. It does a number on your mind. But then throw in the reality of being part of a community of believers together, and you're going to have to wrestle There will be times where being part of a Christian community won't feel good and will feel challenging for your own mental health. So one of the other tension points I think we should wrestle with is this idea of affirming therapy culture and yet at the same time confronting therapy culture. And I think we have to do that from the get-go when Brad talked about pre-emergent discipleship. He also talked about redesigned trellises. I'm curious, as you look at your own church, As you look at your own organization, do you center individualism or do you confront it from the get-go? It's a wrestle, I think, for many of us. Do we center individualism and personal experience and then disciple people out of it and beyond it? Or do we confront individualism from the get-go? I know that some churches have used the catchphrase, live a better story where I think what we're calling people into is to live within a greater story. And so there's a tension point there. And how do you design discipleship? How do you redesign the trellis of discipleship so that people can get the fact that they're important and yet they're part of something much bigger than themselves? I think discipleship is going to be far less linear and far less programmatic in the future. A couple funny stories from pastoring in the past couple of years, I had a guy who popped in and out of our church. He would have considered himself a Christian and he understood the gospel, but he came to me at one point and said, pastor, I really need you to pray for me. And I said, sure. Like, what do you want me to pray for you about? And he said, I'm really looking for um, a woman that I can have a relationship with. And like, we can have a sexual relationship, not every week, but maybe just like once a month. And I think I would really appreciate if you would pray that for me. And I was like, does not compute glitch in the matrix. I mean, what you're basically asking me to pray for you for, it sounds like prostitution. But this guy just had no clue that he should even, one, not ask me that. But then two, that was like off limits. He really was genuinely coming to me, asking for me to pray that him. And so, you know, it made me realize I can just assume far less about where people are at when it comes to discipleship. People are just in different places. And the fact that he didn't even hide it from me, but he really wanted to come to me and ask for my pastoring, my prayer. It was just so funny to me. So imagine that. Imagine people coming from such different places. Well, I think that's where Brad is right on with this idea of greenhouses. We can't sort of line people up anymore and expect them to go through programs and they're all coming from the same place and they're all going in the same place. People are just coming from all sorts of different places and really need a safe place and space for growth. They need greenhouses. Discipleship in the future, I think, will be more relational. It'll be slower there'll be an emphasis on hospitality. And I think we have to start thinking, how can we build models for discipleship that center those things rather than programs? I loved what Rick Hunter asked, where are the glimmers of hope? And I think that's a great place to end this reflection. You know, I look at Romans twelve five and the biblical model that Paul puts forward for the church, it says this, so we, though many... Are one body in Christ and individually members of it. We are one body and we are individuals who are members one of another. There's space in Jesus's church for us to wrestle with this tension. And it's not just a balance of individualism and collectivism. Rather, it's a completely different way of functioning. It's covenantal. It's new covenant based on what Jesus has done for us, We belong to Jesus, and therefore I belong to you, and you belong to me. We are individuals, but we belong to each other. And then secondly, just to encourage you, Jesus says in Matthew 16 that he will build his church, and you're part of that. So even as we look at the fallout of individualism in our culture, Jesus is still committed. He's still committed to building his church, to making a safe place where people can grow together and be a family, and be a people that come to God together. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.